He said something about the same shirt, but his is way smaller than mine. Mine's a lot wider. So, well, we're in a series on um, messages on the life of David. We're actually drawing it to a close in the next few weeks. Um, next Sunday, we're going to have a guest speaker. You will not want to miss John Lynch. He is phenomenal. He's going to be speaking here. He's one of my absolute favorites. Um, but we've had kind of broken up this, this section on the story of Absalom and David, so much so that when last night a few of us were sitting around a fire talking and somebody asked about the message, somebody, Joy, asked about the message um, and said something to the effect of, oh, am I still? are we still talking about Absalom? And then somebody else said, uh, it was probably Bruce, um, what did he say? Well, he dies, yeah, well, he dies this week, so there you go, spoiler alert, Absalom dies. Um, but, but seriously, when we look at this broader story uh, of, of Absalom and David, and, and, and even think about the ending where Absalom does die, I think we th- can easily relate to the heartbreak. There's a heartbreak that happens that a human being experiences that I think um, there's no sadder kind of heartbreak than relational loss, relational heartbreak. I mean, I I think of an example where there's a couple who's standing before a judge in divorce court and their minds rewind back many years ago to where they had stood and looked at one another and said their vows and they had so much hope, so much love but then things deteriorated and they never dreamed that they would end up here in front of a judge and they asked themselves, how did it come to this? And I've been there and I know some of you have as well. Or another situation of relational kind of heartbreak where, where maybe two friends start a ministry or a business or, or, or a church together and, and in the beginning there's all this joy thinking, we get to do this together, we get to be partners, this is a dream come true. But then somewhere along the line, the wheels fall off, and they end up having to you know, dissolve the whole thing with a third-party mediator, and they wonder, how did it come to this? Like, I mean, there's the kinds of heartbreak where, where people are drawn together sometimes, but that's not the kind of heartbreak we're looking at this morning. I think of, of all kinds of the heartbreak, there's nothing sadder than relational heartbreak, and I want so much for you and for our church to not have to go through that kind of heartbreak. And, and I think some of the saddest words in all the Bible are the words that we're going to look at this morning when King David got word that his troops had actually been victorious. Um, and David's rival, the one that had led a revolt and seized his throne, that rival was now dead. But that rival, if you know the story, David's opponent, David's enemy, was David's own son. It was his son, Absalom. And I bet in that moment he remembered back to when Absalom was born and all the dreams that he had for this little boy, and he wonders, how did it come to this? And he actually says, and we'll look at it in a bit, oh, Absalom, my son, my my son, if only I could have died. And in that moment, he stands overlooking the city gates, and he weeps tears of regret. The life of David is told over the Old Testament, and there's 66 chapters that it takes. And seven of those chapters are devoted to this story um, with Absalom, and that's a pretty good chunk. And if you're familiar with this story... Uh, let me ask you a question. Like, do you think that David loved his son Absalom? Yeah, like, I think he did. Like, when he wept those tears of regret, I-, I think he meant it when he said he would die in Absalom's place. I think he loved his son. 
But, but love, yours and mine, has eventually got to move from just a feeling to real action. Like, love has to show up in certain ways if we're actually going to let that love help the people that we love. And one thing's for certain. David and Absalom did not end up where they did for no reason at all. See, relational breakdowns never just happen, right? Relational heartbreak never just happens. There are crossroads moments in David's story with he and Absalom where crucial mistakes got made, where if another road had been taken, things could have turned out way differently. Now, a few weeks ago when we got into the story, um, the story began with three of David's children, and I'll just sum this up real quick. Um, and the story begins with heartbreak. David's daughter Tamar is raped by one of her half-brothers, Amnon. And Tamar's brother Absalom hears about this heartbreaking violation. He invites his sister to come and live with him, which was one way of, of even protecting her from any more violation from this brother, keeps him away from her. And for two years, they wait. And David is angry, it says, but he does nothing. He's passive. He does nothing. And so after two years, if you've read the story, um, Absalom who is in that young warrior phase of of life, Absalom takes matters into his own hands and he kills Amnon. He avenges the violation of his sister Tamar. And Richard Rohr says, a young warrior without a good king will soon become a loose cannon. And Absalom has this passive father, David. He doesn't have anybody older or wiser that he has trusted to help him navigate life. So he's a warrior, but here he becomes a loose cannon. Now, the first time I heard that quote on, uh, on the screen here was, was when I was in my early 30s. I was an emerging leader at a large church, and that quote stopped me in my tracks. And I recognized that with the gifts I had, the leadership opportunity I was being given, like, I could screw it up real quickly and do a lot of damage, actually. Like, I could really hurt people. And so that really helped me lean even more into mentors, into older men and women who I trusted to help me see People with wisdom and experience that they were willing to share with me. And by the way, I didn't just look for you know, people with lots of knowledge about the Bible or ministry. These were mentors that had gone through trials and done the hard work of the journey of the heart. And none of them would say they'd arrived. Um, one executive pastor friend of mine from a large church says, uh, Doug, I don't trust anyone who hasn't been through their own wilderness and done, serious, done a serious amount of hard work. And I'm like, yeah, me neither. John Lynch, who uh, had been the pastor at Open Door Fellowship in Phoenix, and again, he'll be speaking here next Sunday. John was and is one of those good kings in my life. Uh, another one, you often hear me talk about Dave Johnson, uh, the pastor from my home church in Minnesota. Dave has spoken in this pulpit, and I plan to have him back this winter. In fact, Dave's retiring and um, said, hey, if you guys need from four to eight weeks, I'd be able to even come and help at Hope while you guys are doing some rebuilding and some ministry pieces. So if someone here knows of a place that we could have he and his wife stay for, for free and we just love on them, um, they're willing to come and help here. But Dave is a good man. He's a good king. He's, he's even past that king phase into kind of that guru, sage phase of life. And he really offers this wisdom. He has taught me more about being a pastor and a leader and a good man than anyone else. And I can list six or seven other wise kings and sages who God has placed in my life. I mean, I'm a mess still. Even with all that, I'm a mess. Like, can you imagine how bad I'd be without them, right? <laughs> so we'll thank God for them. I'm thanking God for them. 
But the truth is that most men, and women too, grow up with a void inside of them. Call it father hunger, male deprivation, call it lack of fathering, no matter, it's the same emptiness. Richard Rohr again says, when positive masculine energy, which is energy that can be trusted and relied upon, is not modeled from father to son or father to daughter, he says it creates a vacuum in the souls of men and women, and into that vacuum, demons rush. Demons of, of, of self-doubt, of fear, of cynicism, of rage, of rebellion, of bitterness, of manipulation. And in our story, this is what happens with Absalom, and he assassinates his brother, and he flees. He goes to exile for three years. After three years, David's convinced to let Absalom come home. He promises that no harm will come to him, but he makes a crucial mistake. And David says, well, he can come back, but he can't see the face of the king. So David is still disengaged, and he leaves his son to live like he's fatherless and into that vacuum, right? Demons rush. Add to that two more years of all that stuff brewing and taking root, and finally Absalom does appear before David. We looked at this as we ended last week. Uh, it says, and the king, 2 Samuel 14 says, and the king, not his father, and the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. But we notice here how it talks about the king and Absalom. There's the ceremony, and Absalom bows down with his face to the ground, kind of weird in front of your dad, right? And the king kissed Absalom, but it's really just for show. And honestly, nothing is really solved. And last week, I didn't have time to get into this, so I want to pause for a moment here before we continue in the story. Because this action here is still a picture of David's passivity. Hey, we're just going to brush it over. We're going to pretend things are fine, right? They're fine, but they're not fine. Things are not fine at all. In fact, when we ignore issues and, and even call it playing nice and we don't actually deal with problems, they don't go away. <laughs> and most of the time, they get worse. Right? We see this in relationships. We see this in marriages. We see this in churches. See, I think that family systems and church systems that are under a spirit of passivity, and I actually think it's that strong of a thing, a spiritual stronghold of passivity, and if you're aware of how the spiritual realm works and you pay attention and start to watch for this dynamic, you can see how it can infect and paralyze people and systems. But families and churches who partner with, with passivity are unhealthy. That's just simply the way it is. And if... Even if they talk about being safe places and being healthy all the time, if they are infected with passivity, they can never actually be safe or healthy. This is a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, some of us might be thinking, listen, Doug, listen, conflict stresses me out. Can't we just ignore stuff and kind of hope it goes away? No, because, like, Jesus called us to be peacemakers, right? Not peace. Keepers, not peace fakers. And the goal of those two things is very different. Peace keepers, they just keep the peace. They might calm a situation down. They might calm a conflict down. They just kind of cover it up, though, right? The problem doesn't actually get dealt with. Everybody kind of kisses and makes up. And if you do that without solving the issue, eventually it will come up again and again and again. See, that's passivity, and passivity is rooted in fear. And, and it's a reason that nice people, nice people, excuse bad behavior while we fail to recognize how much damage is being done while we're being passive. 
this is the reason that sometimes individuals can be a huge problem in a church or in a family or at your workplace. Everybody knows that they're, dis- they're destructive, right? Maybe you're thinking about somebody. <laughs> Everybody knows they're destructive, but no one wants to talk straight about it. And see, in those kinds of environments, the sick person never actually gets well. Like, that person never gets well. They just get to keep doing what they've been doing. And is that loving, just to let somebody continue to be sick? And when other people just let that stuff slide, then that sickness can spread, and the rest of the family or church or workplace can become dysfunctional as well. And sometimes, like we'll see in this story with Absalom, it gets worse and worse and worse and more and more destructive, and more and more people get harmed. There's so much fallout. I talked with a pastor friend of mine this week who has a staff member that's very divisive, almost in some ways kind of an Absalom by the gate. But the leadership of that person's church won't confront the person, will not deal with the issue because there's too many people that actually like that staff member. And so the leaders are afraid to deal with the fallout of what would happen if they actually had to let that person go and deal with the consequences of how they've been acting. And I confess I have done that too. I have done that where I've avoided stuff and just tried to skate around it and just, yeah, let's, let's just not rock the boat. Let's not make waves. But I have to own this, right? Because that kind of passivity, it's not Christ-like. It's not even neutral, right? It's actually destructive, and it allows an infection to spread through a church body or a family system. Sometimes I think Absaloms are allowed to hang around and keep behaving badly, just out of mistaken notions of what, you know, Christian kindness is supposed to look like. But the truth is, when we pretend that everything is fine, but it isn't, we create a passive environment. And in those environments, people hide. And when you hide, you do not grow. And all we have to do is look at the fruit of those kinds of environments where people over and over and over keep being divisive and causing problems. No one confronts them on it. And it hurts the people around them. This happens, again, in businesses and families and in churches. And so what does it take? What's it take in order to live in a healthy community? The kind of community that we are growing deeper into becoming more and more here at Hope. And I believe what it takes, uh, first step, is what the New Testament calls speaking the truth in love. And I only had time to read this verse last week and not get into it, but let me read it again. Uh, Out of Ephesians 4, verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, right, so he's saying instead of doing it that way, doing verse 14, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And again, I read that last week, but didn't have time to unpack it, and so I just want to go a little deeper with that. Um, Want to grow into who Jesus says you are? That phrase, speaking the truth in love, is a way out of passivity and into maturity. I kind of think of it, um, speaking the truth in love, like like a two-armed deal, right? Um, It takes truth and love, it's like two arms, and it takes both to be effective, Right? So if it's just one arm, if it was just, say, love, then it's not very strong. It's not strong enough, and it's just kind of like, hey, I'm going to give you a hug here, just one arm. Oh, thank you, Jess. That's awesome, Jesse. Right? You know, so, oh, well, that felt good, but I'm not sure what that person was trying to say to me. I just did the one arm, right? 
And if I just use, so that's just the love arm, and if I'm going to go after somebody that could get here. And if I just use the truth arm, then it's like I'm just smacking you upside the head, right, with my version of the truth. And we're missing out. So it takes both arms. It takes being able to embrace someone with the truth and hold them in love. It takes two arms, truth and love. Now, I'm going to make an exception for here, us just here at Hope Covenant. This isn't in the Bible, but as your pastor, I'm going to help out some marriages here, okay? Um, guys, speaking the truth and love, you are exempt from this officially. If your wife asks you the question, do these jeans make me look fat, right? So... In that case, lie. Just lie. The judgment seat someday, blame it on your pastor. That's fine. Yes. <laughs> now, a couple quick things on this before we move on. Now, it helps if somebody's given you permission to, and, and invited you to speak into their life, which we'll talk more about in a couple weeks here. Because if you don't have relationship with somebody, even the truth given in love doesn't have much of a chance to impact someone um, when you bring something into the light, right? Even if you're right about what you're saying, if they haven't invited you, they're not open to trusting you, then you might be wasting your breath. Um, and also realized as I was thinking this through, I want to clarify this. Speaking the truth in love is not an excuse for those of us who are type A, controlling, demanding people. This is not an excuse for us to go and confront everybody, right? So if you're somebody and you recognize you get into a lot of conflict or confrontation with people, maybe you're even kind of getting revved up with this verse here. I'm going to go after somebody, right? So just slow down, right? Slow down. right? Because our version of speaking the truth in love uh, the, the, the love probably hasn't caught up to the truth yet, right? So if that's not the case, you're not ready to go ahead with a confrontation yet. Um, in fact, it's kind of like the illustration we talked about with the spotlight about a month ago, where, where if I'm operating a spotlight, we're trying to live in the light together, and I'm just shining that spotlight on you, you can't see me, right? I'm hiding behind the light because you're blinded by it. But if I put the light there and I step out in front of it and shine the light on myself, now we're talking, right? Now you can trust that person if they're willing to be vulnerable with their own stuff. Um, and we have that credibility. We can be humble together and then be trusted to speak the truth in love. And that's what I want to see us continue to move toward here at Hope. Now, back to our story here. David in that scene doesn't speak the truth, doesn't speak the truth in love. He just brushes it over, he pretends things are fine. And that's on David, right? That's his responsibility. Um, but there's still no excuse for what Absalom did, right? Absalom, even though we understand how he became the way he did, is still responsible for his choices. He doesn't get a free pass, right? So if your dad was an idiot, like all of us dads are from time to time, you are still responsible for your bad choices, And at this point of the story, from here on out with Absalom, Absalom, this, this loose cannon, spends the next four years undermining his own father, trying to overthrow him, trying anything to hurt his own father. The text says that Absalom was also a handsome man. He was full of charisma. He had the kind of presence when he'd walk into the room, it just lit up. Um, and, and he was just like his dad used to be when his dad was the young man and full of strength. 
So Absalom would stand at the gate when people came to Jerusalem looking for, for justice, and Absalom would stop them and say, you know, <laughs> you, you, you've got a valid case there. <sighs> wow, that's a, that's a good point, and, but there's no way for you to get to the king. I mean, the system here, it's just broken. <sighs> if only I was appointed the judge. And he would do that over and over, and people would see Absalom, and they'd bow down to him because he was the son of the king, but he wouldn't let them bow. He'd stop them, and he'd pick them up, and he'd take them by the hand, and he'd embrace them. He'd kiss them. He'd treat them like an equal, which is really interesting to consider how his dad approached him, making him bow, right? This is a very big contrast, and he kind of used this uh, not doing that whole bowing thing as a way to kiss up to the people of Israel. The text says, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So Absalom has now stolen the hearts of the people. And this is probably something that's been going on in him for a long, long time. You know, there's something else about Amnon, the half-brother that, that he killed to avenge Tamar's Violation. Amnon was the firstborn of David's sons. He was the rightful heir, and with him out of the way, now Absalom had a clear path to the throne, except, of course, for his own father, David. And so for four years, undermining, usurping, and when the moment seemed right, then Absalom seized power, and David, the king, he takes his family, his closest advisors, and they flee for their lives. And at this point in the story, we see how severe Absalom's anger toward his father after years and years and years and years has become. He has a pavilion set up on the top of the roof of the royal palace, and he publicly has sex with his father's concubines, the ones that were left behind to take care of the palace when David and his family fled for their lives. I mean, by doing this, he is making sure there is no turning back this time. The text says in Matthew, I'm sorry, in 2 Samuel 16, Says so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of Israel. I mean, he does this in the sight of all of Israel. I mean, this is a way for him to humiliate his father in the most degrading manner he can imagine, and he's letting everyone know who's now in charge. And I think of this question and go, huh, I wonder where Absalom learned to treat women like this. Where'd that happen? And then for a moment, imagine David, right, in this whole situation. This happens. Imagine what he does, what it does to his own heart when he hears about this. How does he feel? Is there rage? Is there anger? Is there brokenness? Like this action that Absalom took would have devastated David. But by now, David is far away. He's had to flee for his life. And where does he go? He goes back to the wilderness, now, you know, if you've been with us in this series that we started in June, you know about the wilderness, about the cave season of David's life. Um, and it was in that first wilderness season of his life that lasted 15 years, back when he was young and strong, back when, when King Saul was the king, an old and corrupt king. But now David's the old man, and he has to go back into the wilderness once more. And once more he feels broken, once more he's humbled, and in his pain... I think he finally opens his heart to God again. 
while he's fleeing with his family, his closest advisors, he's weeping. And one day there's this enemy that comes out and just showers down curses on him. And some of David's say to David, friends say to him, hey, David, listen, let us take care of this guy. We'll cut off his head. You won't have to listen to him anymore, which is, you know, it's a pretty good solution, right? Um, but David, who that might have looked appealing to in other days, says, no, 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 maybe. <laughs> maybe he's speaking the words of God to me. Maybe this is what I need to hear. Maybe this is part of what I can learn while I'm out here in the desert. So don't kill him. Let him speak. See, it's here in the wilderness once more that David opens his heart again to God. This, this man who had become king and through a series of all kinds of stuff became more isolated and insulated as this powerful king. But now in his pain, he'd become willing to hear feedback even from a crazy person. And so here's David. In the wilderness, he'd been a warrior from his youth. He had led so many battles for many decades, but now he has to lead one more. Only this time, the battle's against his son. It's against Absalom. So fast forward through a couple chapters of this here. His troops prepare for battle. He strategizes with his generals, and they say, hey, you have got to stay behind. So he listens. He stays behind. But the text says this. And the king commanded them, be gentle with the young man, Absalom, for my sake. And it says, all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. And so they did. They went into battle. Many of you know the story. Um, Absalom was really proud of his hair because it was just beautiful, right? He'd let it go really long, and he'd cut it off only once it became too heavy. The text says that when he would cut it off, it would weigh five pounds of hair, right? Five pounds. This is like a locks of love, love jackpot, right? Just, holy cow, man. Follow that guy around. So he's this good-looking kid. He's got this great hair, but in battle, that hair is not so handy. And so while he is riding, it says that his hair gets caught in the branches of the trees, and the first group of soldiers see him, and they leave him hanging there, knowing David's clear orders. But when Joab, David's advisor, his commander-in-chief, who clearly heard the order from David, but when he hears that Absalom's hanging there, despite David's orders, Joab, Joab kills him by driving three spears into his heart. Dave Johnson says about this scene, it's, it's this is disturbing. Like, if you try to imagine it, even... Absalom hanging by his hair from a tree with three spears in his heart. And Dave says, I wonder if this is even supposed to serve in this story as an image to remind us of what God actually thinks of these usurping spirits um, and wants to make sure we don't make any mistake about that. Meanwhile, while this is happening, David's waiting for news. And as was customary in the day, a runner was sent to David to tell him what transpired. And so, uh, again, just imagine this guy. He's a runner. He's a Cushite. And it says in verse 31, then the Cushite arrived, and he's run a long ways. And he says, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. And then maybe the surprising words, verse 33, the king was shaken. He went up 
to the room. Over the gateway, he wept. And as he wept, he said, oh, oh, my, oh my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. See, when the message comes to David that Absalom is dead, David has that moment of clarity that, that sometimes comes when it's too late. And the writer says that the king was shaken. He was shaken because now he sees so clearly this life that was entrusted to him as a father, this baby that he'd held in his hands so many years ago. He probably imagines Absalom back to when Absalom was a little boy, this little boy who adored his father and, and this little kid that would play soldiers, this, this little boy that would play David and Goliath, and he always wanted to be David when he played that game because he wanted to be just like his dad. And David thinks about his son, this foolish rebel who, who saw his father publicly being acclaimed by all these people, leading them in all this worship. But, but Absalom knew the private David, a darker David. And David has to wish that he had talked to his son about all of that. David has to wish that he had talked to his son about his own failures, his own weakness, his own struggles. His own brokenness. See, the king is shaken because he thinks of all the things that could have been but now will never be. He thinks of the father that he wanted to be and could have been but wasn't. He thinks of all the stupid choices that he made like all of us make. So many bad choices. He, he thinks of the words that he could have said to Absalom but didn't. And finally, he pronounces the one word that he could not bring himself to say this whole time, this one word that hadn't been said in all the texts, this whole experience with Absalom. But now suddenly he says that word and he can't stop saying it. It's like he's been storing it up all these years and he has to say it over and over and over, even though his heart breaks every time he utters the word. But now he finally says the word, oh, my son, Absalom, my son. He says, if only I had died instead of you, my son, my son. See, and I think, I think his heart breaks most of all because now he's finally saying the word that he wished he had said so long ago, so many times and never said. And I think part of, of why his heart was breaking is maybe in that moment he wondered if this whole sad story might have turned out so differently if he had said that word, if he had lived that word so long ago, my son, my son. And so this is the final intersection that I want to talk to you from this story about. And I just want to spend a moment on this because, friends, love speaks, right? Hey, love listens, and absolutely we need to listen. Love confronts, speaks the truth in love when it needs to. But love speaks, right? Love acts, as we say around here. Love is spoken. We speak the truth in love. And some of you are here this morning, and there is a relationship that is breaking your heart in your life, and there's a word maybe that you need to say. And if that person like Absalom were to die, and you like David were to be left behind, I don't want you to suddenly have this moment of clarity that too often comes when it's too late. I don't want that to happen. 
Maybe you're thinking about your marriage or you're thinking about your relationship with a brother or sister or maybe somebody who used to be your best friend. And you have to wonder when you look at the story of David, a similar thing like, how did it come to this? And so my question for all of us, myself included, is um, what is the word that you need to say? Maybe it's, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Maybe it's, I love you. Or maybe you're the one that was wronged, and the words you need to say are, I forgive you. Maybe you need to say the words, let's try again. Maybe it's a son or a daughter or your mom or your dad. And maybe God's prompting you this morning. Maybe this will be the hardest thing you've ever done. Because maybe there are weeks or months or even years of distance or stubbornness or pride or self-protection from a heart that, (laughs) I know, I know, it hurts sometimes. And for some of us, like, even if you have that conversation, there's not going to be a magical ending because maybe that person isn't a safe person. And so the thought of rebuilding a relationship, that might not be your next step. I'm not suggesting that it is. But at the very least, there's a word that might need to be spoken to help you move toward freedom. And I think that, that, that this story serves as a warning, a strong one. Don't do what David did. Don't do what David did. Do not assign yourself to a lifetime of regret. Like if there's a word that needs to be said in your relational world, um, you need to say it and you need to say it now. And it's not going to be easy, but you've got backup because God is with you. He is always in the middle of reconciliation. He is always with you. So maybe you're here, and like David, maybe you're thinking for whatever reason that it's too late, but friends, it's not too late. As as long as, as a human heart beats, there is healing, there is grace, there is forgiveness available at the foot of the cross. But for those of you that still have it within your time and power to look at that relationship and say what needs to be said, don't wait. Don't wait. See, David's life, even in this story, this tragic story, it's not over yet, even at this low point in his life. And, and although it felt like it was over, it was not. And God still had great things in store for him. And, and for anybody in this room, that's true for you as well. Like, it's not too late. Not for us. As long as there is breath in our lungs, Jesus can step into any of our messes and empower us and bring light and truth and love and hope. The Holy Spirit will empower you to move into difficult situations and conversations to actually learn to speak the truth in love. Worship team, will you come? Friends, no matter your mess or the mess that you face, God can free you. He really is with you. Like Jesus is in it with you. So as scary as some of this might look, um, you don't go into this alone, not any of it. So I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads. And there's a few different groups that I want to speak to this morning. And and I want you to consider, just kind of search your heart. Just open your heart. A few different groups. And the first one is maybe you recognize in yourself kind of the usurping Absalom. 
And friends, we all have some of this in us, okay? <laughs> and if that's you, your, your step into freedom, out of that mess, um, like there's grace and forgiveness. And so repenting, it means you own your stuff, you clean up your mess. And if that's something that is moving in your heart and you see a place where you have, you can relate to, to Absalom and you want to put a stop to it, um, just take a moment with you and Jesus and tell him about it. And another group I think of besides the Absaloms are maybe the passive Davids. And this probably applies to a whole lot of us as well. And the question is, where and with whom do we need to stop avoiding conflict? And instead, we need to, to learn to listen and speak the truth in love. Like, so what is the word you need to say? Who do you need to say it to? So that passivity, just put a stop to it. So there's not that regret. And if that's you, Again, in this next moment while we sing this song, this is the time for you to do business with, with God and to talk to him about that. And lastly, there may be someone here this morning or some people this morning, and, and you see your need to mend your spiritual relationship with, with God. And as you've been here today, maybe something's been drawing you to Jesus and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus today and you need to and want to receive the forgiveness of your sins and begin to follow Jesus. And for some of you, God might be calling you to make that commitment right now. And so before we even move into this song, um, if that's you, I want you to search your heart and during this next song, just say what you need to say to Jesus. And for all these groups, after we are finished with this song, there will be a prayer team up in the front that you can come pray with for any reason whatsoever. But if you really want to make a move on some of this stuff, especially beginning a relationship with Jesus, we're going to invite you to come and pray. So Jesus, as we take these few moments before we dismiss to just stop, take a deep breath, and to allow you to search our hearts, we open ourselves to you in Jesus' name.